Let's give a thank you to the Lord for our time in worship. Um, if you're new with us, or if this is your first time here, or you're on with, online with us, thank you so much for being here. My name is Jason. I'm one of the pastors here at Zion. Um, sometimes when we, we engage in worship, we may not always understand what is taking place, why we sing. And we've talked about this before, but I want to remind us that in all of the things that happen on a Sunday morning, when we sing, it is actually the one thing that we as a corporate body get to give to the Lord. The Bible actually describes it as us as ministering to God's heart. And then here's the remarkable thing about God's grace. We come and we sing and we worship. Some of you raise your hands, some of you don't, and that's okay. But the whole point of it is it's us ministering to God. And then the beautiful part is, is then God says, now let me minister to you. And so that's part of the reason why we sing. And, and I got to tell you, I was sitting there and I'm standing and I look over and, and I'm watching as my wife and my daughter are worshiping and, and it brings no greater joy to me than seeing my family love Jesus. And, and our hope is as a church community, like yes, we, we unabashedly, we believe that we want to be a place that you can belong. Even if you have questions, if you're not sure about this Jesus stuff, we want you to feel like this can be a part you can be a part of what's going on at Zion. But when I say that we are unabashedly about Jesus, is my hope, my desire, our desire as a church family is that you and your family and those around you would encounter the radical love of God. And when we worship, and I, I want you to hear this. So I was a youth pastor for six years. In my first youth ministry, we had people who, come to, who came to Christ, who became Christians, not because of what was preached, but because of what was sung. We had people who didn't know Jesus, who were so overwhelmed by the love of God and seeing a community worshiping that we had people who, we had kids who were like, I want this. And, and that's the power of our worship is when we make God the center, the throne of our life, something amazing happens. Does that make sense? And, and so here we are, we're in this series, um, we're, we're doing the Purpose Driven Life. How many of you have gotten the book so far? Okay, how many of you started reading? How many of you are already enjoying it? Right? If you're not, it's okay. Uh, by the way, we have, unfortunately, we're backordered on our books. Um, they're coming in on Tuesday, so if you still need one, you can get one. But here's what happens, is that the reason why we're going through this is that um, it's so easy to misunderstand our purpose, isn't it? And, and even on Sunday morning, how often, and I can't, I've said this before, so this is not an indictment on anyone else but myself. I've had times where I'll come in within a time of worship, and I'll say, man, I didn't really get much out of that wow, did I have it wrong? Because the question is not what I got out of worship, it's what did God get out of it? Does that make sense? And I want you to think about that for a moment because how often do we come to church and the goal is what I get? And in music, I didn't really like that song, or oh, it sounded so good. And, and the goal of our worship is about first and foremost recognizing that worship is not about us. In fact, I would argue there are probably some Sundays, some churches where the music is incredible, People are pumping, lights are going, everyone's like, yeah, and Jesus is like, I was nowhere in the building, yo. And, and so why are we talking about purpose? Well, because I believe at the heart of everything that we do, the greatest question that human beings have been asking is, what are we here for? This is not new, it's not something that's come about in the last 20 years, 30 years, it has existed since time began and what the Bible tells us is, first and foremost, is God prepares for us a purpose. God is the one who becomes our purpose. And this morning, we're going to start looking. We're, we're delving into the book and the real question of what on earth are we here for? And, and I want to read a few quotes from history. This is from Robert F. Kennedy regarding the ponderings of our purpose. 
The purpose of life is to contribute in some way to making things better. Okay, that's, that sounds like a, an okay thing to say. Pliny the Elder, if you don't know who he is, that's okay, but he's, a, he's been around for a very long time. He's, he's the elder. He's really old. True glory consists in doing what deserves to be written and writing what deserves to be read and in so living as to make the world happier and a better for our living in it. Now, you guys catching a theme here? Most people think the purpose of our lives is to make the world a better place, okay? This is what, this is what often, and I hear a lot of Christians say this. Fyodor Dostoevsky, the brother of Karamazov, I can never say that right, however you pronounce that. The mystery of human existence lies not in just staying alive, but in finding something to live for. Ralph Waldo Emerson, the purpose of life is not to be happy, it is to be useful, to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you have lived and lived well. This is all, again, this is what people have said throughout history, the purpose of life, and you might have caught a theme here. The theme for them seems to be the purpose of every human existence is to make the world a better place. Now, that doesn't sound bad, does it? I mean, it's certainly better than making the world a bad place. My daughter, 15 years old a few weeks ago, and I got her permission to share this, so I, I, whenever it comes to personal things, I never share personal. I'll share fun stories, but never personal stuff unless I have permission. And a few weeks ago, my daughter was having a, a really enough rough morning, and I went and asked her, and I said, hey, what's going on? She was staying home from school, and she said, I didn't sleep very well last night. And there's a lot more to this conversation than I'm going to share, but listen to what my 15-year-old daughter said. I was laying in bed last night and I realized no one is going to know who I am in 200 years. So why does anything I do matter at all? What's the purpose? Now, she didn't know we were going to go through the purpose-driven life. She didn't know. She asked this question and, and I think about this for a moment. My daughter's not the only one struggling with these questions, are they? She's not the only one who's wrestling. This is not a new thought. And yet I truly believe the answer to this question is more important now than it has ever been in the years past. Because for the first time in my life, and, and please hear this, this is not meant, um, I, I'm not trying to be political, I'm not trying to cause a stir, but I think we would all agree, regardless of whether you're a Democrat or Republican, if you're liberal, conservative, I think we would all agree on this. We have an entire generation that is being told the only thing that matters is what they feel. That all, everything in life is about how you feel, and more importantly is that how you feel is the truth. That feelings are what truth is, and anyone who challenges your feelings is at best mean and at worst your enemy. This is part of our culture today. And there's a problem with feelings. Now, feelings are God-given. Let's be clear. Now, anybody who knows me, I actually don't like feelings, especially bad ones. I kind of avoid them at all costs. And it's not that feelings are bad. God created feelings. Feelings are a gift from the Lord. In fact, God show, talks about his feelings towards humanity, for God so loved the world. God had anger over sin. Anger is a feeling. Feelings are not bad. But what happens when feelings become king? And the problem is, is that feelings are incredibly fickle. Would you agree with that? And they are often not rooted in truth or reality, but rather they're rooted in perception, what you think is going on. And while some will say feelings are not good or bad, I think we can all agree that feelings can certainly be unhealthy. And so what does this have to do with purpose? Well, as I look at my own kids and as I've spoken to several parents over the last couple of years, here's the, a truth, okay? This, is, this has been proven, and I'm not going to give statistics because 89% of all statistics are made up, but, <laughs> but there is proof, there's, there is evidence that this generation of children are more anxious, depressed, 
stressed and overwhelmed than probably any generation in my lifetime. The number of kids who have anxiety disorders is overwhelming. The number of children that I walk around, I mean, when I was a kid, like if, uh, if I got hurt, the, the rule of thumb was, you know, I don't know, put, it, put an ice pack on it and move on. Now, if any little thing bumps into them because their feelings are king, all of a sudden their world can become upended. And it's not just, it's not just all in their head. The truth is, is that we live in a very unsettled time, don't we? And it's always been that way, but because we've made feelings king, now all of a sudden your purpose becomes what you feel. Your purpose is found in whatever you want it to be. And this begs the question, why? Why is this happening? Well, and I, I wonder if it's because somewhere along the way, and I, I, again, this is my generation now I'm talking about, somewhere along the way, the generations before them, that's me and you, whether it's Gen X, Gen Y, baby boomers, whatever you want to be, somewhere along the way, maybe we miss the point and purpose of life. Maybe somewhere along the way, we kind of, we helped make this happen. And I believe that the Bible is God's truth. It's not God's feeling, it's God's truth. I believe the Bible sets us up to show us, one, a broken humanity, but also how God wants to bring redemption and truth into humanity. And, and in the Old Testament, it's interesting, you may not know this, but in the Old Testament, most of the Old Testament is stories. Actually, most of the Bible is stories, but particularly the Old Testament, there's not a lot of letters. There's some wisdom literature, some poems. But in the midst of all of that, here's the problem with stories. The only thing we can do with the story is make conjecture. What do we think the purpose of this story is? Because it doesn't always tell us the purpose. In fact, the Jewish rabbis... They believe the beauty of the stories was to basically come out and pull out what God is trying to reveal in the story. So this morning, as we've come in, as we've done for the last several weeks now, we're going to pray. And if you're not a Christian or if you don't feel comfortable praying this, that's okay. But we've now written a corporate prayer that is an invitation for God to move in us. God's already in this place, amen? God is everywhere. But what we need God to do is not just move in here, we need God to move in here. So if you would, would you stand with me and let's pray together. And this has been, and if you don't want to pray it, it's okay, this is between you and the Lord. But if you would, join me for those who would like to. Father, thank you that in the midst of all the busyness, all the messiness, all the stuff of life, that if I have placed my faith and hope in Jesus, you are not just with me, but you have given me the Holy Spirit to live in me. Holy Spirit, I set aside the worries of today. I want to be present in this moment. So still my thoughts and my heart and help me to focus on what you have for me through your word. I pray your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, starting with me. In Jesus' mighty and holy name, amen. And now would you join with me in our scripture for today? However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him, these are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit. The word of the Lord, praise be to God, you may be seated. Now you'll notice in our verse this morning, it starts off with this. Paul says, the Apostle Paul, he was not a direct disciple of Jesus. He was not part of the original 12. God called to him as he was walking to persecute the church after the resurrection. Paul says this, No human mind has conceived the things God has prepared for those who love him. Meaning, no matter how hard you try, you don't know the thoughts of God. And I'm, I'm kind of grateful I don't know the thoughts of God because I don't think I could handle it. 
These are the things God has revealed to us in the Spirit. I believe God has a purpose prepared for all of our lives. And we discover that purpose in knowing and loving God. Let me say that one more time. I believe that what Paul is getting at is that we find our purpose. We discover God's heart, those secret things of the Lord, when we first know and love Him. We don't find them by reading books, even the purpose-driven life. We don't find it by going to a seminar. You don't even find it by going to church. You discover what God's heart is by getting to know God. And not just knowing God, loving God. It's relational in nature. Last week, we began this series by talking about the difference between purpose and calling. God's calling in your life is how you live out your purpose, but your purpose purpose is not determined by your calling. Did you guys catch that? God's calling, the things that you do in your life are how you are going to live out your purpose, but your purpose is not dependent upon your calling. In fact, often we have things where God is, has a purpose in your life, but you're rejecting that purpose. You're pushing back against that purpose. You're not living into your purpose, which usually means you're rejecting the calling. I wonder if part of the reason so many of us struggle with understanding or identifying our purpose in the world is that we often associate our purpose with the things that we do with activity, with talents, with actions. But see, it's not just our activities that sometimes mess with our understanding of purpose. It's also our passions. And our passions can often get in the way because our passions are the things that we want. And and let's be clear, passion can be good. Passion might even help you figure out God's purpose for your life. But what happens when your passions are not aligned with God or even worse, they go directly against God? Passions are a real thing. I want to give you a couple examples. How many of you know someone who is very passionate about a particular sports team? Raise your hand. How many of you guys know somebody who's like, yeah, go Vikings, right? And in fact, they're so passionate about it. They have all the merch. They watch every game. They know the stats, the players. Fantasy football is like, that's, that's their church. They get their fantasy football league. If they could sing songs, they would. You know what I'm talking about? When their team wins, they are ecstatic. And when their team loses, their day, maybe even their week, is trashed. They've elevated that, and here's the problem. It's, there's, no, there's no issue with having a passion for sports, but what happens when you believe your passion is your purpose? When your passion is messed up, you believe you exist for that passion. And that passion shows up in all kinds of different ways. This morning, we're going to look at a story in the Old Testament about two brothers whose passions and desires actually got them both into a lot of trouble. And as we look at this, we're going to look at it from a 20,000-foot view, so I'm going to tell the story until we get to the point where we're really going to focus on. But what happened is we, we find through the story that God is telling us about God's purpose and grace in our lives. This morning, I want to look at two brothers, Jacob and Esau. How many of you have ever heard of these two guys, Jacob and Esau? Okay, now it's interesting. We always put Jacob first, but what we'll find is Esau was the firstborn, and that's a whole other story. We'll get that in a minute. Now, as we look at this, I'm literally going to cover like eight chapters in about five to six minutes, okay? So it's really meant to be a 20,000-foot view. And there's a couple things that we need to know before we come in, okay? So one, in the ancient world, birthright was everything. The order of birth was very important in the ancient world. In fact, the firstborn male was the one who inherited the birthright. 
And so it didn't matter if you were second born, third born, technically according to culture, according to the, the rules of the land, the birthright, which meant the inheritance, the wealth, the leadership, the blessings, all went to the firstborn male. Women didn't get birthrights, okay? Different time, different place. I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm saying this was the world and reality back then. And, and here's what we find. Birthright is a really big deal. Now, we kind of have a sense of this because what's happened in England in the last couple years? Actually, this last year. The queen died, and you have two brothers. Now, here's the thing. There's no difficulty because we all know who's the older of the two between William and, uh, what's the other guy's name? Um, Edward. Yeah, what's, who's the older? William, everybody knows he is, but there's still a power dynamic, right? There's still a struggle about who's going to, who's going to rule. And, and Edward's kind of, what, what's the word? He's the, the replacement in case something goes wrong. He's the spare. He actually just wrote a book about that. Now, this is a struggle between in a family where it's very clear who's first in line. Imagine how difficult it is when the struggle is between twins that are literally born a foot apart, <laughs> Anybody who knows the story is going to get why that's humorous. <laughs> there was actually a struggle even before they were born. There was a struggle between Esau and Jacob in the womb. There was fighting. They were fighting against each other even inside their mother's belly. Esau is born first, and he's born with reddish hair. He's kind of a reddish person. Kind of, I'm picture he looks like me. He's reddish, and he's really hairy. That's all it says. Like, I don't know what that means that he's really hairy, but he came out of the womb and they're like, wow. <laughs> like you could braid that stuff. You know what I'm talking about? Like my, my daughter was bald as a Q-tip. Like she came out, she had hair and then it disappeared. And I'm like, where'd it go? That's not Esau. Esau is hairy. And it says this, Jacob came out holding the heel of Esau, of his brother. And as Jacob is coming out, that's immediately, it's meant to be a struggle. And here's what we discover over time. Esau is his father's favorite, partly because he's, he's going to get the birthright. He's the one who's the rightful heir to his father. But Esau is also a very man's man. He's athletic. He likes to hunt. But he's also super impetuous, impulsive. He's driven by his appetites and desires. Jacob, on the other hand, is kind of a mama's boy. Jacob his mom loves Jacob, and Jacob likes to cause problems. In fact, his name literally means liar, okay? And Jacob is not athletic. He loves to cook. In fact, we're going to find a story in a minute here. He loves to cook. He seems to be the exact opposite of his brother. While his brother's out in the field, he's in the tent making food and doing this stuff. But here's the thing. Jacob, while his, his brother is impulsive and rash, Jacob is smart and cunning and almost ruthless, Jacob is a liar and a manipulator. And what comes next in the story, literally, I, I got to tell you, HBO and all these TV shows, Game of Thrones, these have nothing on the Bible. What you're going to find next is it's like straight out Yellowstone meets Game of Thrones meets Succession all rolled into one in the story of Jacob and Esau and their families. Now, these are not an endorsement for these shows, let's be clear. But here's the thing. People are like, oh, have you seen Game of Thrones? You know what the first Game of Thrones was? Read the Bible. You want to see the first drama? I mean, if we were to actually put in a movie accurately what is seen in Scripture, it would be far, far more grotesque than anything you see on HBO. And it's pointing to the human condition. Pastor Derek so eloquently put it in our sermon read-through. He said this, 
I don't like any of the people in this story. Like, they're all messed up. The whole family, all of them are just garbage. And this actually matters way more than you think. And I want you to hear this, okay? God's way throughout history has been to work with and through broken families and people to accomplish his purpose in the world. There's not one person in the Bible who has their stuff together. Moses, the only one who ever really has it put together is who? Everybody say it with me. This is a Sunday school answer. It's, that's the only person in the entire Bible who's got it all together if you follow the, the course of their life. Why? Because Jesus is not just man, he's God. Everybody else are broken people. That includes you and me. So one day, check this out, Esau comes in from the hunt, okay? And he's been hunting all day. And, and you, I mean, if you have kids, you've heard this when your kids, I'm starving, oh, and you're like, you're not starving. Jacob comes in from the hunt. I'm starving. And he sees his brother, or Esau, sorry. Esau sees his brother Jacob cooking. And Esau says to Jacob, I'm starving. Give me some of that soup you're making. Jacob sees an opportunity. Jacob goes, okay, sure. Um, trade me your birthright. And listen to what Esau's response is. What do I care about a birthright? Sure, just give me the soup. Birthright's yours. Literally, he traded the inheritance that God, not not that God, that his father had intended for him for a bowl of soup. Esau's impulsiveness, his drivenness, and literally all of this happens. Why? Because he is driven by appetites and desires. But so is Jacob. It just comes out differently. Now, there's a problem with this story is that one, he actually doesn't have the right to trade his birthright. It's not his to give. Now, once his father dies, if he wants to trade the birthright, he can, but his father's not dead yet. It's his father's birthright to give, not his. So how do you trade something that's not yours? Second or or third is this, is that as we fast forward, what we're going to find is that somewhere along the way, we're going to find that Esau didn't take that trade very seriously. Now, there's a bunch of story that goes on, and here's the problem when we read the Bible, is we tend to think it happened like this was Monday, this was Tuesday, this was Wednesday, maybe fast forward to Friday. Sometimes, oftentimes, the Bible, there might be decades of life that goes in between stories. And we have to remember this moment in which Esau traded his birthright with Jacob because towards the end of his father's life, Isaac is dying, he's blind, and he knows his time has come, and so he calls for Esau to come. He says, Esau, come, come to me. Esau walks in, and he says, son, I don't know how much longer I have, but I'm going to die soon. Would you do me a favor? I want you to go out. I want you to hunt. Come back and cook me my favorite meat. And then once you do that, I'm going I'm to give you the blessing. I'm going to pass on the birthright to you before I die. Esau leaves the tent. He goes out, he's got, his, he's got his bow and arrow. Now, here's part of what I want you to realize. When Esau, for, hunting for Esau was not just sport, it was his job. He provided food for the family. How many of you know people who are driven by their jobs? You all know people who are driven by their jobs. Esau's mother overhears this exchange. Esau leaves and their mother then calls to Jacob and says, Jacob, come in. Okay, so here's what's happening. Your father, you know, he's blind and he's old and he's dying. He's, he's going to pass the birthright on to your brother. But here's what, I've got a plan. I've got a plan for you. You ready for this? I want you to go and pretend to be your brother. And, and when you go in, you're going to come in because he's blind. He's not going to know it's you. And you're going to steal the birthright. Now, this is jacked up stuff. Like, 
This is husbands and wives conspiring against each other. This is messed up, right? And Jacob goes, okay, mom, I, I don't think this is going to work. Like, sure, maybe I can kind of disguise my voice to sound like my brother, but my brother's got hairy arms and he smells bad. And she goes, tell you what, go out and kill, kill some, uh, some goats, come back and I'll make you some sleeves made of hair. And so when your father hears you, you can, he can touch it. And so sure enough, Jacob does this. He comes in and he walks in and he says, Father, I've brought the stew. I, I brought the meat for you. And his father, who is blind but can still hear, goes, that doesn't sound like my son. And he goes, sure it is. Touch my arm. This is how hairy he is. Like, could you imagine touching a goat and going, yeah, that feels like my brother. That's my son. He touches the, the hand, he touches the arm of Jacob and goes, oh, this truly is my son. And then he goes, and to verify it, you smell like my son. Okay, let's think about that for a second. <laughs> you smell like the, the cattle or you smell like the lambs and the sheep. That's kind of messed up in a different way, right? And, and he goes, okay, and then he passes the blessing on. He, the blessing, the birthright that's supposed to go to Esau goes to Jacob. Jacob then leaves. He has conned his father with his mother's help. Jacob leaves and Esau comes back in from the hunt. He goes, father, I'm here. And it says this. Isaac began to shake because he realized, wait a second, I just, you were just here. What just happened? And he goes, your brother tricked me. I've already given the birthright away. I didn't know it was him. And, and it says, Esau began to weep, weep bitterly. And he says, Father, bless me. Bless me. And he says, I, I can't. I've already given the birthright to your brother. I can't take it back. Now listen to these next words. It says, Esau despised his brother and planned on killing him. His words were, if I see my brother, I'm going to kill him. He's stolen from me. Now, their mother knows and has heard this, and so she goes to Jacob and says, hey, I want you to go to your uncle's house, and once things calm down, I'm gonna, we're going to come back and we're going to get your, we'll, we'll have you come back once your brother calms down. Now, who, who knows how long that's going to go? Now, here's the, the, the amazing part, and I think this actually, there's a part of this story that we don't always think about. Jacob has conned his father into giving him an illegitimate birthright, an illegitimate blessing. Now, check this out. Jacob conned his dad. His dad still loves him. And before Jacob leaves, Isaac calls Jacob in one more time. Now, check this out. You guys ready for this? He says, son, let me give you a blessing. The first blessing was illegitimate. The second one, Isaac passes on the blessing to his son. Did his son deserve that? No. In fact, Isaac could have said, you already stole the blessing. I'm not giving you anything. But no, Isaac loved his son despite his brokenness, despite his cons, despite all the things that he did. And now you have Isaac who is literally doubly blessed. One illegitimate, one given by his father. Why does this matter? Because this is a picture of God's grace. Do you realize that God blesses you, gives you a promise of a birthright in Christ, and it has nothing to do with how good you are. It has everything to do with how good He is. I want you to hear that. Because sometimes what happens in our Christian walk is we go, man, I've, I've done so many illegitimate things. I've come by things the wrong way. God would never bless me. And, and the blessing that's promised to those who love and have given their life to Christ is eternal life in Christ. Paul, or, or the writer of Hebrews, says it this way. Some of you are literally going to enter into heaven smelling of smoke. You were that close to hell, but God's goodness is that good. 
This is a picture of grace. Now you're like, Jason, what's the point of all this purpose? What, what does this have to do with purpose? I mean, that, that's a great story. In The Purpose Driven Life, Rick Warren brings out five things that drive our lives. And I, I can't say the Bible doesn't tell us what was driving Jacob and Esau, but it's pretty clear that they were not driven by the Lord. In fact, I think you could argue that neither of them actually loved God. If they did, it certainly didn't show in their lives. But here are the five things that Rick Warren says drive some of us. And I think there's more, but he points out five. Some of you are driven by guilt. Bad decisions and sin can leave some people without purpose wandering, just assuming that the only purpose of life is to feel guilt and shame. Some of you are driven by resentment and anger. Bad things happen to you, so you hold on to resentment and anger, and you either clam up or you blow up. Anybody here relate to that? Anybody here, you get so angry, you either clam up or you blow up, and, and you go through life believing the purpose of life is to hold on to the past because you're that angry. Some of you, the purpose of life is driven by fear. Fear grips and imprisons you, and you believe the purpose of life is simply to be safe, and so you're always, you're risk avoiding. Why? Because the purpose in life is to make sure that I'm okay and you're okay and nothing goes wrong. Some of you are driven by materialism. The whole purpose of life is to acquire more and more stuff, money, cars, houses, trophies. Some of you are driven by approval. You're consumed by people-pleasing, and you think the purpose of life is getting people to like or approve of you. I don't know about you, but as I read through those five things that drive, I kind of went, yep, guilty of a couple of them. Anybody else found themselves a little convicted of that? And here's the thing. They, Jacob and Esau were driven by something. Esau may have been driven by his appetites, his feelings, his status. Eventually, he was driven by anger and resentment. I mean, think about it. Esau, again, hunting was not a hobby. It was his job. That was his status. But he was also very impulsive and reckless and thoughtless because his purpose was all out of whack. He made bad decisions. That's what happens when our, our purpose is in the wrong place. When we're driven by the wrong thing, we make the wrong decisions. He traded his birthright for a bowl of soup. Jacob may have been driven by anger and bitterness. Who knows the reason why he might have been such a liar? Is he's like, are you kidding me? The only reason why you're the firstborn is because you were like two seconds ahead of me. I should get the birthright. You don't deserve it. I, I, I. Maybe that's what drove his anger and bitterness. Maybe it was materialism. Maybe he was like, I, I want the blessing. I want all those things. We don't know what was driven. It might have been fear. But we do know this. Because Jacob's purpose was all messed up, he lied, he cheated, he stole, he manipulated, he took advantage of his brother's sinfulness. Did you know that some people, in their brokenness, they take advantage of other people's brokenness to achieve their own gains? Maybe you're that person. Maybe you look for the weak spot in an employee or a friend or a spouse, and you, you're leveraging their brokenness so that you can move further. All of these are driven by the wrong thing. And look where it got both of them. Esau now hated his brother. He had no birthright. Jacob was on the run. <laughs> And sure, he had the birthright, but who cares? You're not with your family? See, here's the thing. It's easy for us to look at them and say, well, I've never cheated or lied. I've never, I'm not a con artist. Maybe you are a con artist. i got to say, if you're a con artist, welcome to Zion. I'm so glad you're here. No, really, I am. If you're one of these people, I had somebody once said, you know, I'm, none of us have murdered. If, I, someone's like, what if someone had murdered? I don't know your sinfulness and your brokenness, but God does. 
And our job is not to sit there and say whether who's in and who's out. Our job is to let people know the radical love and mercy of a loving God. Amen? Now, here's the thing. As we look at this, you might go, well, I, didn't, I, haven't, I haven't stolen or cheated. I've not done these things. But do you remember how we talked about how Jacob's father blessed him even though he didn't deserve it? The first blessing was illegitimate. He lied to get it. The second was simply because God or because his, his father, Isaac, wanted to give it. If you are a Christian, a follower of Jesus, you have a promised blessing that is not conditioned upon your faithfulness but God's. I've said that before. I'm going to say it again. But why does this matter? See, when we look at our purpose and calling, I wonder how many of you are missing out on God's blessing for your life because your purpose is being driven by the wrong thing. Instead of being driven by God, it's being driven by your job, it's being driven by your family, it's being driven by your hobby, whatever else it might be. And you're like, well, Jason, I, I'm, not, I'm not like these, these guys, I'm different, but let me show you how sometimes our wrong purpose comes out. And I, I want to be clear, I'm going to talk about church for a second. There are legitimate reasons to not be in church, but right now I hear this a lot. And this is where the first lie comes in. How often do I lie and make excuses for not doing things that I know please God? Let me say that again. How often do I lie and make excuses for things that I know please God? Not Pastor Jason, not your spouse, but you know please God. I do it all the time. Do you? There are regular times that God tells me to do things, and I'm like, God, can you just blink for a second while I make this really dumb decision? And, and here's an example of this. I hear this all the time. I'll see somebody, and I don't see somebody at church for a while. Does it, does it please God when his people gather in community in church? The answer should be what? Yes, if you know what pleases God, if He is your purpose, you should want to please God. And here's what I have. Well, Jason, I'm just too busy. I hear this all the time. I'm just, I, you don't understand how busy my life is. Now, again, I'm not saying that there aren't things to be busy about, but let's be honest. Busyness is a lie that we've learned to embrace in our culture, isn't it? Oh, I'm so busy. Really? Why are you so busy? Well, I've got my kids' sports, hunting seasons in full swing. Hear that one all the time. How about this one? Well, I was tired and I slept in. Why were you sleeping? Well, I was out drinking last night until 2 in the morning. Or how about this one? Um, well, we've got family commitments. It's funny that all these things take family commitments over teaching your kids to love Jesus. And I'm just as guilty, okay? So this is, this is it's so easy for us to make excuses or even going to the gym while I had to work out because I'm preparing for something. Now, let's be clear. Are there good reasons to not be in church? Yes, you're on vacation. I get vacation. You should take vacation. Did you know you can also go to church in other locations? Did you know that? <laughs> like there are other churches. What? <laughs> Is it okay to have a hobby? Yes. Is it okay to go to a football game on a Sunday? Yes. But don't make excuses. Now, you might say, Jason, well, that, of course you're going to say that because you're the pastor and you want to grow a church. No, even when I wasn't a pastor. Remember, I just talked about this last, last week or two weeks ago when I, my purpose was all jacked last week. Was that last week? I'm, oh, my time's all messed up. Did you know we still went to church when I wasn't a pastor? We went faithfully. Even there were times Sundays and I was like, I really don't want to go to church right now. But it's not just about church. We do this in all the other areas of my life. Did you know I rarely meet a person who says they're too busy for the things that bring meaning to their life? Some of you are like, that's not very comfortable. Yep, that's the challenge. Now, I want to get back to the story of Jacob real quick, okay, because this is where we're coming to, and I promise, like, this is, this is all going to, the plane's going to land. It's coming down. Brett's like, thank you, Jason, a pilot joke. 
he flies planes. <laughs> He's also really mad at me for saying that. It's okay, I don't care. <laughs> Jacob is running from his brother. And he's laying down and he goes to this place called Bethel. And as he's sleeping, it says he laid his head on a rock for a pillow. Yuck, that's super uncomfortable. And it says the Lord came to him in a dream and he showed him a ladder. Interesting. You have a, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> he shows him a ladder going to heaven and angels are ascending ascending and descending down to earth. And Jacob sees this ladder and he sees God up there. And I, I want to just, I'll, let me read it to you because it's, it's so much better than if I say it. Here we go, ready? He had a dream in which he saw a stairway resting on the earth was it with its top reaching to heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and to the east, to the north and to the south. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought,